0: Hi everyone, this is Criterion Channel Surfing, and I'm your host, Josh Hornbeck. Just a quick note before we begin today's show. Over at the website for our home network, CriterionCast.com, Joshua Brunstein is providing some really great coverage of the New York Film Festival, highlighting some really incredible films. And because this year's New York Film Festival is holding online screenings, you actually have the opportunity to catch a lot of the films that he's covering. Many of these films will also be playing at other online festivals throughout the rest of the year as well, so this is a great way to learn about some contemporary cinema that you really don't want to miss. So head on over to CriterionCast.com and read all of Joshua's coverage of the New York Film Festival and discover something new. Thanks for listening, everyone. And now, here's the show. You're listening to Criterion Channel Surfing, a podcast dedicated to the film's The Criterion Collection streaming video service, The Criterion Channel. I'm your host, Josh Hornbeck. Alexandria Daniels, film blogger and guest of the It Pod to Be You podcast and the We Cut Heads, a Spike Lee podcast, joins me as we head back to school discussing films about teachers and students that are only available on The Criterion Channel. But first, I'll also check in with Becky DeAnna to discuss the films of Albert Brooks. Stay with us as we start surfing the Criterion Channel. If you enjoy Criterion Channel surfing, check out Film Baby Film, a podcast hosted by Jonathan James Lobinger, a podcast for people who love movies or films, if you're being pretentious. Host Jonathan James Lobinger discusses a wide range of film topics with guests who have more interesting perspectives than he does. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. CriterionCast, a podcast network and website for fans of quality theatrical and home video releases. Find out more at CriterionCast.com. I'm here once again with Becky DeAnna, Frequent guest on Wrong Reel, Film Baby Film, and the Criterion Now podcasts. Becky, thank you so much for joining me again.
1: Oh, I'm so excited, especially to talk about Albert Brooks.
0: Yeah. And, you know, the Criterion channel this month debuted a bundle of Albert Brooks films. And as we're starting to talk a little bit about doing deeper dives into some of these uh, special bundles, and when Albert Brooks came on, you reached out to me and said, hey, can I talk about this? I thought this is perfect. First off, I, you know, Albert Brooks is, you know, I know you've said to me, one of your favorite directors. And... uh He's a filmmaker that I have just a passing acquaintance with, so uh, I am super excited to talk with you a little bit more about this filmmaker that you love so much. If I know correctly, he is second only to Bergman to you. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, he's second only to Bergman to me, Um, and I discovered him before Bergman. He was my favorite director until I discovered uh, (laughs) Iğmar Bergman.
0: (laughs) Oh, that's great. Well, let's just dive right in. What was your first introduction to Albert Brooks?
1: My first introduction was Defending Your Life, which came out in 1991. Mm -hmm. I was 14 years old. That was a big year for me because um, that was the year that Terminator 2 came out, which is also my favorite film, which is also that is my favorite film of all time. So those are Defending Your Life and Terminator 2 are um, in my top three favorite films of all time. Um, And actually, my second favorite film of all time is Broadcast News, which is which stars Albert Brooks.
2: Mm. So
1: my second and third favorite film of all time have Albert Brooks in them. (laughs) He directed one of them. Um, and Broadcast News, I think, is his best performance ever. But um, I saw that movie with my family. We absolutely loved it. And we immediately bought it on Laserdisc because we were all about Laserdisc yeah. <laughs> in our house when it came out. And we watched it endlessly. That was kind of like the film, my maiden name is Vargas, and that was like the Vargas family film. Mm. Um, we just absolutely loved it and we watched it all endlessly. After that, my whole family started digging into his other, some of his other films, like Lost in America. And what it wasn't until I think I was in college, I met uh, my, my best friend Josh is like a big Albert Brooks fan and we decided to like d- dive into like some real life and modern romance. We hadn't seen those at that point. My parents didn't watch those with me, which is probably good. Then I actually got to see as they came out in the theater, uh, Muse and Mother and looking for comedy in the Muslim world as first run the movies, but first run was de- my first, the first run film Defending Your Life actually saw in the theater and, and it just blew me away. And have you seen that movie?
0: I have not seen that yet. Uh, this is one that I'm really, really excited for. I know my wife has seen this one and she really likes it and uh, this is one that I think that we'll probably watch together. So my my background with Albert Brooks is actually pretty scant. I haven't seen very many of his films. I think I saw Mother in the theaters and uh, it was when I was just starting to get into smaller films in college and was just starting to explore films that Uh, were off the beaten path. And it was one that didn't quite register with me. Mm -hmm. And so I I never quite got into Albert Brooks until just recently. And it was hearing your love for Albert Brooks. It was hearing about Brian Sauer's love for Albert Brooks on his podcasts. It was hearing other people Mm -hmm. talking about it that really helped me reevaluate, I think, my impressions of who Albert Brooks was seeing how, how disciplined he is as a filmmaker, that he's only made a handful of films and yet they all seem to be so laser sharp and so focused. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really gotten me excited to dig into his work and I'm really glad that we have you know, some of his really uh, important works all right here.
1: Yeah, like a, f- a few years ago, I think it was maybe two years ago, Netflix released all of his films, um, mm-hmm. and that was exciting. And th- but they were only on there for a brief amount of time for some reason. And Albert Brooks even did like a trailer, like a Netflix trailer about like calling executives up at Netflix about his movies being on the show on there, and that was super exciting. But it was mm-hmm. I don't I don't understand what the terms were because it was very temporary. And mm-hmm. the, um, bummer is that his films haven't really crossed the pond like they're not international at all like I meet people who are big movie junkies internationally and they just don't have access to his films so they didn't really grow up with him or or understand him and again he doesn't have this monster filmography that's really well known the one thing is I've been on actually my first podcast appearance ever was on Wrong Real in 2015, and it was because of Albert Brooks. Mm. Um, and so that's kind of a notable thing because I've done over 40 uh, podcast appearances, and I had never ever thought about podcasting but I, I had was friends with Jamie Hancock, who's the host of Wrong Real, and I had been wanting him for a year or so since he started his podcast. Had, I wanted him to cover Albert Brooks because I was obsessed with him. And I'm like, you have to do it. And, and then he did an episode on the Terminator franchise with some of the other hosts, and they tore apart the franchise. And I was like so horrified <laughs> that we had... Uh, dinner at Comic Con a few weeks after that Terminator episode had dropped. And we had dinner at Comic Con, and I essentially said to him, I don't want you to touch Albert Brooks anymore. I I'm so afraid of like what you're of what's gonna happen if you guys cover him. And he said, Well, why don't you come on the show and you can take care of him and you can <laughs> actually talk about why he's important to you and and everything. And I had never even thought about podcasting before. And so I was like, Oh my gosh, that's a great idea. And so I remember I went and I bought like a professional microphone. And I'm like, yeah. maybe if I'm good enough, they'll ask me back. And so yeah, my first podcast appearance was on Wrong Reel talking about. Modern romance, and we talked for about uh, we had a, it was an hour show, and during the show, they asked me to come back to talk about Igmar Bergman. So then mm. my second appearance was on uh, Igmar Bergman, but uh, th- yeah, Albert Brooks is I absolutely worship him, and he is my favorite actor. I don't know if I've said that already, but I kind of feel, and I've said this on some, I did a monster episode on Wrong Reel in 2017 on his albert brooks's entire filmography which is really a great listen if you Mm. want to check that out and it's like a two and a half hour episode and we go through every single one of his films and all his comedy routines and everything it's really great listen to get a deep dive or if you're a massive fan it's fun because we do it with it's jamie hancock and kevin marr who does kevin geeks out shows in new york and he's a comedian so it's fun to have his take on him but I say in, in that episode that I sort of feel like people are truly special and unique when I find out they're an Albert Brooks fan mm. there's some sort of connection I make with people if somehow I find out that they love Albert Brooks I'm just instantly like they're my friend instantly mm. like I'm instantly like you're such a cooler person than <laughs> I thought you were before and Brian Sauer, who has the uh, Pure Cinema podcast, he and I connected on Twitter, I think like in 2010 or something like 10 years ago and before he even had his podcast because he tweeted something about Albert Brooks and I just like found it and I thought it was so funny. And then we connected and then we've been friends on Twitter ever since. (laughs) So we bonded over Albert Brooks and I bonded a lot with a lot of people on Twitter over Albert Brooks because he's so He's unique and um, brilliant, and uh, and just an extraordinary comedian, and actor, and director, and writer. And his films are 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 like like just all gems. Like I, I really think he's a national treasure.
0: Mm. Yeah, my first time really digging into a film and and really knowing albert brooks and and trying to really understand him especially now that i've had a few more years of digging into films more intentionally under my belt was watching lost in america when criterion released their disc a few (laughs) years ago Uh and that film just absolutely blew me away it is so sharp it is so funny and it's so well observed uh, about human nature and Mm -hmm it's it's a perfect comedy and i love the way that he he skewers all of the characters and and i think that uh the thing that that struck me about it is that you know in in so many of these types of husband-wife road trip films uh the the wife is often the long-suffering voice of reason yeah. and yet she gets this really great arc as well and gets yeah. to be just as maniacal and just <laughs> as as troubled as he is and it's also this great social satire I mean it's there's so much going on there and it gave me this incredible respect for everything that Albert Brooks was doing in that one film and it definitely turned me on to what he is trying to do as a filmmaker Mm -hmm. and it made me eager Uh, I think right after that I was trying to figure out okay where can I watch the other films okay how can I get discs (laughs) of the other films now
2: (laughs) yeah
1: that film was so brilliant and it was so exciting when it came out because all of his DVD all of his uh, movies at that Point had been on like bare bones DVDs, like that were yeah. literally was just the movie in a trailer maybe some bios. And Criterion put out this beautiful Blu-ray for Lost in America and had some a great interview with him, um, with Bob Whitey, who directed the, that amazing Woody Allen documentary. And it's just it's just a fantastic supplemental, all these great supplemental pieces with the movie. And great interviews. And I was on Criterion now actually to talk with Martin Kessler, who was on your last episode, which is really shout out to Martin Kessler. Uh, We did an episode. He talked about Czech films and and we talked about other stuff, but we uh, also celebrated Lost in America. And one of the things I mentioned in that episode was how much I loved the titles of the the blu-ray um the chapter titles in that blu-ray mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. i don't know if albert brooks was a part of creating those titles or if he sat down and uh, or somebody that was a massive fan wrote those titles but they were all like really brilliant and each title was like specifically the capture like the most brilliant moment of that scene in what they like one of the uh, this chapters is called 22 and one of the best ones is like when Albert Brooks is like a crossing guard near the end of the movie. The chapter title is uh, don't call me retardo because some kid calls him that. And it's pretty much where he thinks like his whole life is like gone awry. But uh, yeah, that, that, that movie is absolutely brilliant. And, It has a lot of signature things in it that Albert Brooks does. And and in particular, he does these things in his films where he like blows up, where something he's very calm and then he just blows up and tells somebody off. And he has a few of those in this one where he's talking to his boss and he quits his job, which is the premise of the film. And there's another is that signature nest egg scene in the film. And those are are a lot of his films have those scenes where he's and it's just you can't wait. You're like, oh, my gosh, he's going to blow up and it's going to be so brilliant. <laughs> and those two. And it's funny because the nest egg scene wasn't even in the original script. They had they tested the movie and pretty much Julie Haggerty there is in the car and says something like, yeah, I just really can't apologize much more. I don't know what you want me to do. And that's really how the scene ends and like all the cards and stuff. People were like, we hate her. She's the worst. And like, and so they put in this nest egg scene to make her just, it was really funny. Like he wrote it up, but it was also just to make, her a little bit more likable mm. uh, because he was unleashing on her and it's also yeah. this this scene where uh nicholas winding ruffin saw when he was a kid and he was absolutely terrified of albert brooks he's like i've never seen so much rage and when he was a kid he was totally scared of albert brooks because of that scene and that and that he immediately thought of him when he was casting drive as like That's a villain because of that scene
0: that's really fascinating to yeah. think that the comic rage in the <laughs> Albert Brooks films then translates into the the terrorizing rage in yeah. Drive. Oh, that's great! That's great. Well, why don't we maybe talk just a little bit? Can you can you tell me maybe just a bit about his background before he dove into filmmaking itself, just for people to get a. a an idea of what he was doing before he stepped behind the camera
1: yeah of course so he is southern california born and raised in los angeles beverly hills he went to beverly hills high and that's another reason why I'm so drawn to him is because I'm born and raised in Southern California too. A lot of people called him mm. throughout his life, the West coast, Woody Allen, because they mm. have very, they're very neurotic and they have, and they're Jewish and they're, they have similar sensibilities. He has less body of work than Woody Allen does, but they were compared a lot to each other. But I love the fact that Albert Brooks absolutely loves Los Angeles and this is where he's from. And you'll see that in some of his films, he'll make fun of New York. He makes fun of New York in lost in America. Like, why do I wa- why would yeah. I want to go to New York? Cause they offer him a job offer in New York. And he's like absolutely horrified that he would have to move there. <laughs> um, so it's kind of funny, like he, he loves L.A. and he's been here his whole life. But he grew up here and his best friend was uh, Rob Reiner when he was growing up. And uh, and he got to know Carl Reiner because that was Rob Reiner's dad. And there's this great part when Carl Reiner was on Johnny Carson once and they interviewed him and he he said, the funniest kid, the f- funniest person I know is my best friend uh, is my son's best friend. And he was talking mm-hmm. about Albert Brooks. And Johnny Carson's like, well, who is this kid? Um, And it was funny because ultimately uh, Albert Brooks got to be on the Johnny Carson show. He was on Johnny Carson show over 40 times. Yeah, so he started off, um, he had always wanted to be an actor. That was actually what his dream was to be an actor. But he ended up going into being a comedian first. And he just was always funny and had like, and really funny friends and he did this piece, the the famous school for comedians. He wrote this piece for Esquire and it had like a picture of a real school and it was made up. But and it was before that anyone ever really did anything like that. And mm. so they actually the Esquire magazine got 3000 responses of people that wanted applied to this to be <laughs> in the school for comedians. Because there was never really anything mockumentary stuff out there when this happened, and this was in 1971. And then so in 1972, uh, PBS called him And said, "Hey, we'd love for you to do a short film on the famous school for comedians." And so he did that. And and what and it's funny thing that came from that is that Saturday Night Live before when they were thinking of creating that show, Lorne Michaels called him up and was like, "Hey, we what do you guys think about the Albert Brooks show?" And he didn't want to do it. Was Saturday Night Live like they asked him to be the permanent host of Saturday Night Live? That was show was going to originate from that. And he's, he's like, I don't understand why a live show would be funnier than a tape show. And that's not interesting to me. And he's like, well, why don't you just have a rotating host? That sounds a lot more funny. And that's what they ended up doing. But it's so funny because there's so many things that he turned down throughout his career. You know, when he as an actor, like he turned down being a, the permanent host of Saturday Night Live. He turned down being in dragnet Mm. he turned down the role tom hanks's role in big Mm. he turned down charles grodin's role in midnight run he turned down billy crystal's role in when harry met sally And he also turned down Burt Reynolds' role in Boogie Nights and also the role in Pretty Women, Richard Gere's role in Pretty Women. So he just has, like, really high standards. (laughs) And there's uh, varying reasons why he's turned down various things. Like, he turned down the role of Boogie Nights because he was just getting money for the muse and he was, like, just uh, getting it up and running to make it. So Mm -hmm. he didn't want to stop it to be in this movie. And other things, he just didn't feel like he was the right person for it. So he turned them down. So he was on... the Steve Allen show and the Dean Martin show and then the Ed Sullivan show Merv Griffin and Johnny Carson and the first thing he ever did was a Dean Martin show and then that was around that time was when he was doing like I said the famous school for comedians Esquire article and all came from that so then he did six shorts for SNL that was one thing he decided he would do for them so he did six shorts for them and though there was one short that was the episode that Rob Reiner was on and when Rob Reiner introduced it, he introduced it as this is my my best friend in the whole world. This is this is his short when it was really cute
2: Mm. uh,
1: because they were so such good friends. Yeah, it's pretty great. And actually, the reason why he ended up directing was because um, he never really wanted to be a director, but he was wanted to make real life. He thought that that would be a really funny movie to create. And when he was in the process of uh, writing it and making it, he started getting frustrated with like, wait, who are you going to cast? And why would you do that? And that's a weird choice. And then just realized that like, wait a minute, I have way more control over what this end product is going to be if I direct it. And so that's why he ended up directing it, because Mm -hmm. he he wasn't um, comfortable with where they wanted the film to go and where the script was going, and he didn't like how they wanted to make certain script changes. So that's why he ultimately started directing. And then he ended up writing with uh, Monica Johnson. Monica Johnson is the one that co-wrote Lost in America and Mm -hmm. Modern Romance, and she did Mother, and she didn't, she he did defending your life on your own, but she was great and she really got his sense of humor. They were a great duo for a while, and unfortunately, she died of cancer and they didn't really get to continue their relationship further through other films. But that's kind of how he got into all that, like, he just. Like he even like they had like a father son talent show at Beverly Hills High and he was he was the kid that was the MC of the show Mm. and made the whole like all and it was all these famous people were going to school there or fathers there like Rod Serling was a father there and stuff (laughs) but it was it's so crazy so he just was always around sort of famous people and they always thought he was really funny and he just created funny lines when he MC'd so there was a lot of attention on how funny he was and that he was just born you know. He just was a genius
2: mm, and just great. funny because
1: his name is actually i don't know if people know that is he was his father was a comedian and named him albert einstein thought that that was funny because <laughs> their 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 name is einstein because his brother is uh david einstein and so he changed his name he was totally upset that his dad made him albert einstein as a funny joke and so when he was 19 he changed his name to albert brooks <laughs>
0: You know, it it sounds to me like he really, you know, he doesn't have a huge filmography, but it sounds like he is really exacting in the films that he makes and really, really takes his time. To get things right Mm -hmm. and and it sounds like from what you describe when he made real life that 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 he really moved into filmmaking because he wanted to make sure that every element was right Mm -hmm. that every element was perfect for this film and i think that just is is really really neat and really exciting i i find myself drawn to those filmmakers who who really go in with a clear vision and they really have something to say with the work that they're wanting to put out into the world
1: yeah, he's definitely that way. And he, he's always knows exactly. And he's always been sort of ahead of his time, too. And, and and pretty much everything that he's done. And like he even wrote a book about five years ago called 2030, the real story of what happens in America. But it's brilliant. And it it really kind of predicts certain things that I, and it it seems like a lot of things that could actually happen in the world. It's Mm. it's a very funny book, but also kind of very scary book. Essentially that the the kids, the young people are starting to get frustrated with the old people. They call them the olds because Mm. they are having to spend all their lives paying for them because cancer has been cured and now everyone lives to be like 130. So now the young are having to put the burden of having to pay for everybody. And there's this massive earthquake in LA and then China ends up becoming a friend to uh united states in the end and it's just like it's really a really biting uh sarcastic book it but it's extraordinary and very uh Mm. fun um and Mm. that's i highly recommend that book and he he wrote that book uh, like i said about five years ago well
0: that's neat that's great (laughs) Where would you recommend people start with this bundle? There's only five films mm-hmm. in it, so it's not—it's an easy—it's an easy bundle for people to catch yeah. over the next few months while it's on. What would you recommend people check out first, maybe?
1: Gosh, so defending your life is my favorite film, and I love it so much. And I always feel like that's the film that I would love people to start off with. But I mm. know it's not as biting and and brilliant and. Personifies what Albert Brooks is like uh, Lost in America is. So I feel like Lost in America is the perfect entry point. Mm. And again, these films, there's not that many. So it's not like you have to watch them in chronological order, like with Bergman, how I always suggest like, oh, it's great to see how his themes develop and all that. I think the best thing is to watch the film that's the strongest. And then you really get hooked into who he is. And then you can explore the rest of his films because real life is a movie that's brilliant, but it's like my least favorite of all of his films. I just think it's amazing, but it is his least favorite. And I think that movie, if you see it first, you might be like, I think it, it it has more resonance if you know if you know who Albert Brooks is and think and understand his humor because I think it might not play as well for certain people. Um but Lost in America if you see that movie and love it like you do then, then you're in. <laughs> That's
0: great. That's <laughs> great. I
1: think that you you have them. And that that movie has everything you need. Modern Romance has less optimism than Lost in America. It's a lot darker. It's hilarious. It's absolutely bri- brilliant and funny. And I love that movie. But it is very cynical. And Lost in America has sort of like the biting humor. And it's cynical. But it's also ha- is is positive, And it's about a loving couple. And there is a lot to relate to. Because in Modern Romance, the setup for Modern, in romance is Albert Brooks' character in the beginning of the movie breaks up with a girl and uh, a woman named, and it's Catherine Harold, who he actually dated in real life. He's dated Julie Haggerty as well. He's dated a lot of beautiful women like Linda Ronstadt and a lot of amazing people throughout his life. But he actually breaks up with her in the beginning and that's the premise of the movie. And then uh, after he breaks up with her, he realizes that he shouldn't have broken up with her. And like the whole movie is trying to get her back and they get back together and then he wants to break up again. And it's like, he seems like he's mentally unstable. (laughs) (laughs) in the movie a little like he's it's just like and it's hilarious to watch it but you don't really relate to him because he's kind of crazy but it's so fun to watch and one of the funny bits throughout the movie is he consistently is telling people that he broke up with people like he goes into a running store and he's like yeah I just broke up with someone so I like to start like you know running or he goes into like a CVS or something and he's like yeah I just broke up with my you know he's like going to park his car and he's like yeah I'm gonna go get something to try to get makeup with her He's like telling everybody that he's breaking out with they're kind of like in lost in America, how they're he's yeah. always telling everybody. We just, you know, we just quit life, and we're starting. We're going to touch Indians. Like he's telling everybody, and nobody yep, cares. Yep, yep. So it's a similar thing, and it's very funny. But he is much more. Re- he's relatable in Lost in America. I think, especially if you have um, have a corporate job. Mm-hmm. I do have mm-hmm. a corporate job, and there are scenes in Lost in America where I think anyone that's had a corporate job can relate to when maybe somebody gets that promotion that you know you don't think they deserved it, and you did, or you really you're boss really helped make you believe that you were going to get it and 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 just that that notion of like wait a minute maybe i should just quit you know screw this i'm just gonna quit and i'm just gonna drop out of society and and do that and so it's i think everybody has that notion that that that's something that they want to do and it's and it's relatable but defending your life is i think his most wonderful brilliant film absolutely love it It's got a happy ending, which not a lot of his movies do, but this film is wildly romantic. It's very funny, and it's just like a wonderful movie, and so this is the film, like I said, my family became obsessed with when I was a kid. I've had some people introduce them to, to defend your life that like need something more like biting and stuff. Mm-hmm, so they're not mm-hmm. as interested. But I think if you've seen, like I said, if you get see Lost in America first, you might be like, Oh my gosh, lost in America, you get his humor. Yeah. But defending your life is is absolutely absolutely wonderful. What's interesting about Defending Your Life is that there was an article about it a few years ago about how it resonates still today with young with people who are young like um, 18 to 25s. And actually, I saw it when I was 14. And maybe that's another reason why I became so obsessed with it because the film is essentially about overcoming your fear mm. and taking opportunities when they come and not letting fear stop you from doing what you really want. And that in itself is really relatable to really everybody but especially I think people who are young because they don't they're trying to figure out especially in your 20s like what am I doing maybe I should have done this or done that and it's like it, it's just really hopeful about that and the premise of defending your life is at the beginning of the movie is this man gets hit by a bus when he's driving in his brand new BMW and he gets sent to Judgment City which is sort of like a limbo between moving forward there's not really a heaven and a hell and the whole goal of the movie or the whole goal of life and what they say in this movie is that you move forward and you become smarter that's the and you get to use more more percentage of your brain and they're told like on earth you only use three percent of your brain and then he starts meeting everybody in judgment city and they're using 50 percent of their brain or 60 percent of their brain so it's really cool and the whole the whole premise of the movie is that every person gets sent to judgment city after they die and they have to defend their lives so they they'll pick uh, a few days of each person's life where you get to review the days of your life and they look at stuff that's happened to you and choices you've made and decide that if you've overcome fear in your life, then you get to move forward. And Mm. of course, Albert Brooks' character has not, like, he's not overcome fear in his life. And so it's really, and and that's really all of us. So it's really fun. And you think about what it would be like to actually have to go and watch days of your life that time you didn't stand up to that bully, or you didn't um, stand up to your boss and things like that. It's really a profound piece of work. Um, I absolutely love it. Um, I think I cry almost every time I see Mm. it. I also think it's one of the Rare films that actually show, I think, what true love really is. I think it shows he meets Meryl Streep in the afterlife, and he it kind of shows how love shouldn't be difficult. A modern romance, the whole movie is love is really difficult. This relationship is really difficult, and in *Defending Your Life*, you see what true love what is when you meet your soulmate is that you know things are effortless like you have to try at some stuff but you just get each other and things aren't hard anymore and it's just wonderful and I, I think I've used the word wonderful like seven thousand times in the last <laughs> minute or two, but it's it, I it I cannot think of another movie that's more wonderful than this movie, and also just so funny. Rip Torn is hilarious in the movie. It is really fascinating how, like I said, it, it seems like a whole generation of people now are discovering it, especially people like I said who are young. Albert Brooks said he got a letter a few years ago from a mom who said that her son was so obsessed in the movie that he memorized it. And so it really hits a chord with young kids and with people in their 20s.
0: Mm, That's neat. What would you say about seeking out the the two films that aren't in this bundle, uh, The Muse and Looking for Comedy in the Muslim World? Are those films that you would recommend people try to see after they have maybe caught up with the films that are here?
1: Yeah, I do think so. I think all of them are fantastic. Um, If you guys, and maybe Josh, you can put a link to that Wrong Real podcast that we did with Kevin Maher and and Jamie Hancock, where we did a two and a half hour deep dive on all of them. We really celebrate all of those movies. We love all of them. I think that uh, Looking for Comedy in the Muslim World didn't, I think it it had like 48% or something in Rotten Tomatoes. It didn't get like a a huge, a lot of people didn't love it, but it's very funny. And if you're an Mm -hmm. Albert Brooks fan, like, it's not for everybody. That movie is definitely not for everybody. But if you get Albert Brooks and you get a sense of humor, it's a very funny movie. And The Muse is as well. Um, like, I would say The Muse and, and Looking for Comedy in the Muslim World aren't his strongest in his filmography, but they're definitely worth seeing. And they're very, very funny. Um and he plays himself in both of those movies, which is mm. great too. And he did that before anybody else did. He did that before Larry David did and Jerry Seinfeld. And he was always he he talks sometimes about how like there was this interview I heard of where he's like, there's no line at the bank that's that like is ahead of your ahead of your timeline, where you know he does not like he get anything for being able to see things, you know, <laughs> more forward thinking than other people do. But he's okay with stuff. Like he's he's okay with not being chased by paparazzi and and being yeah. like he's turned out. Like over a hundred roles and, and also just like he loves acting and the stuff that he's been in as an actor, he just elevates them. Like I would say this is 40 is an okay movie, but mm-hmm. like he elevates it because he's in it. He yeah. is just an amazing actor. But yeah, I definitely think the muse and looking for comedy are films that definitely seek out after if you like him. And cause if you're, if you're not interested, I guess if you've seen all of them, then you are, but I, I feel like hardcore Albert Brooks fans, especially are going to love looking for comedy in the Muslim world. Maybe not hardcore Albert Brooks fans, but <laughs> the muse is relatable and it's fun. And also if you love Hollywood, because he plays a Hollywood director and Sharon Stone is his uh, muse. And there's a lot of like cool cameos with James Cameron and stuff, but it's also very, there's a lot of really funny Hollywood humor, If you end up seeing Lost in America and Modern Romance and love those movies and love him, then you're going to absolutely, I think you're going to love looking for comedy.
0: That's great. That's great. Well, Becky, thank you so much for talking with me about Albert Brooks. This is great. And this is getting me even more excited to dive into the films that I haven't seen and to especially revisit Mother, which is one that, again, I saw two decades ago and to see now that I've gotten a little taste of Albert Brooks and his comedy and oh, to
1: you're have, welcome. see
0: a little bit more. Yeah.
1: <laughs> one thing before we go, because it's it's a notable thing if people think about it why his filmography is so small is because people of like me that are marketing <laughs> that market movies he talks about a lot about how when he makes movies that the third like he, he calls making movies he considers them in three acts and so the first act he considers is writing the second act is making the movie and the third act is releasing it and mm-hmm. he hates the releasing part because he doesn't like people in marketing telling him you need to change this you need to change that and um, he, he just absolutely doesn't like that part and that's the reason why he doesn't make a lot more movies and he hasn't and then like on modern romance they like read him the cards and he said it was like just being in guantanamo like them sitting there and reading him all the cards of what people said about the movie. Oh. So that's one reason why he doesn't make more movies if if anyone wonders out there why his homography is not bigger.
0: That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine that for someone who has such a clear vision Trying to work within a more established studio system must be frustrating at times.
1: <laughs> yeah, and that's, I think, is he just, he's always wanted to be an actor and it's so much easier. And he could just go in his trailer and act, and they just tell him when he needs to show up. And he doesn't deal with all of the other studio <laughs> executives like me. He, he loves it. So yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, but yeah, and um, and if you're if you're looking for me, if you w- want to hear more about me and like Al- and talk about Albert Brooks, I like, can talk about him all day. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Hollywood Minotaur, and that's Hwood Minotaur.
0: That's great. That's great. Where else can people find you online?
1: I have a website uh, called com, And the link to it is on my Twitter profile. Or you could just, you know, type in Becky, dot com, And that has all of my top 10 lists from the last like 15 years. It has all of my podcast appearances and including if you want to just look, I did the modern romance art episode for Wrong Reel. Then I did the big Albert Brooks filmography episode for Wrong Reel. There's Links for that, and then I also talked about Lost in America for criteria now, and there's links for that. But there's also links for Albert, for Ingmar Bergman, and every other Star Trek, and all the other stuff that I'm <laughs> obsessed with. But th- those are the two best places to find me.
0: That's great. That's really great. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun.
1: Oh, so much fun. Thanks for for having me on.
0: Well, we'll be right back with more Criterion Channel Surfing, as Alexandria and I look at films about teachers and students that are only available on the Criterion Collection's permanent digital library. Stay with us. If you enjoy Criterion Channel Surfing, make sure to check out The Robert Taylor Odyssey, a blog written by Robert Taylor. Robert Taylor takes you along for a journey into his cinematic obsessions, from the Criterion Collection and Film Noir to the films of Akira Kurosawa and the American Film Institute's Top 100. Find out more at theroberttaylorodyssey.wordpress.com. Welcome back to Criterion Channel Surfing. I'm here with Alexandria Daniels, film blogger and guest of the It Pod to Be You podcast, and We Cut Heads, a Spike Lee podcast, and we're getting ready to dive into the back catalog of Criterion's permanent streaming digital library. Because the channel releases so much really incredible content each month, it's really easy to overlook these corners of their permanent library. So here on the podcast, we really try to pay special attention to these titles and give you a few films to check out. you may have missed. It's September, it's that time of the year when students would normally be heading off to school. Of course, this year is a little different with the continuing pandemic. A lot of students are doing school virtually, but we still thought it might be nice to look at a few films that explore school and the relationships between teachers and students or between mentors and mentees. If you'd like to follow along at home, Michael Hutchins has compiled a letterbox list of Criterion streaming-only titles. You can find a link to that in our show notes. So, Alexandria, when I first approached you and asked if you'd be interested in joining the podcast, part of the discussion was about schedule, but also you said you were interested in talking about kind of school films and films about teachers and students. Is there anything about the theme that really stood out to you in general?
2: Well, some of my favorite films involve teachers and how they impact their students. I think mm-hmm. personally, this is something that I always look for whenever I'm in school. You know, not to say I don't disrespect any teacher, of course, but, you know, there's just some yeah. teachers that resonate more than with others. And yeah. as someone who loves the arts and I love poetry, I love, you know, I love acting. I love any t- anything involving the arts. Having a teacher that's able to kind of convey this notion of having a free spirit and doing what your heart says really means a lot. And um, actually one of the films, actually gonna I'm going to mention it in a bit, but I had a teacher once who, uh, she actually introduced me to like a dead poet society mm-hmm. and she, she was someone who really meant a lot to me because she always encouraged me to be my best and to always try and to always strive to doing what I wanted to do. And it's really interesting how she kind of introduced me to those kinds of films because it kind of reflected how I kind of saw her, like she kind of saved me from myself almost. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. But yeah, those themes about, you know, having students feel pressured to, re- to already live by society norms. So when you have a movie that kind of shows how a teacher can say, there's more to that, you know, you still have your spirit, you have to watch after you have dreams of your own, you're meant to pursue. Yeah, and um, But as well as those things kind of talk about the pressures of even living up to your parents' ideals and your teachers' ideals and having to feel you need to conform, you know, those things resonate with me a lot. So that's why I really wanted to pick the theme because I, there's a lot of great movies that kind of talks about those things.
0: That's cool. That's really great. Well, why don't we just dive into the conversation? So what's the first film that you want to talk about today on the Criterion Channel?
2: Pitnick at Hanging Rock. It's Mm. from Peter Weir and uh, came out in 1979. And it's based off the novel The Same Name from Joan Lindsay. It's actually one of the most prominent films in the Australian New Wave cinema. It's a very beautiful, beautiful film, but it's one of those films that talks about femininity and adolescence and how growing up, how you view things like beauty and loss and uh, women uh, girls like coming to their own basically but through an adolescent view picnic at hanging rock as she tells a story about these group of girls and one of their teachers they all go to a picnic at hanging rock victoria which is in australia and the girls kind of go away and they go to explore this rock and as they're exploring it they suddenly disappear and Mm -hmm. The teachers, the rest of their peers are left frig- trying to figure out what happened to these girls. Simultaneously, they're fascinated by these girls, like why are these girls in particular, and especially Miranda. She is the uh, one of the main characters, and she is just adored by everyone who meets her. Uh, everyone finds her magnetizing. They love her. They love her spirit. They love like how she is, how she carries herself. She's basically one of the popular girls in school and everyone kind of like compares themselves to her a little bit and i, I kind of like the more i watch the film i kind of pick that up from other for the other mm. characters in the group you know like they always want to follow miranda you know or her what she has to say like she really matters but there's also she, miranda seems to kind of live up to this ideal of what femininity is mm. and uh, to everyone's eyes and you know that's a tall order for because she's only a teenager she's only you know this is in school so, you know, you have those dynamics of, you know, her being the popular girl and everyone wanted to be around the popular girl, even the teachers love her, you know, the most beautiful teachers are there and they always love her. Miranda too. And it kind it's just like a nice, like, study of how we view beauty and what is beauty, whoever and whoever's like, people say beauty is the eye of the beholder, right? Yeah. <laughs> So this movie kind of like explores that. But also kind of shows just, I want to say, I want to say almost like problematic in the way the more I kind of think about it. Because, you know, there's different kinds of beauty. This one only explores one kind of femininity. Mm -hmm. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? So, you know, it's a a beautiful film. It's It's a film that actually inspired Sofia Coppola and her Directorial style. If you've seen the Virgin mm. Suicides, th- these two movies have a lot in common because they deal with the exact same thing. Yeah,
1: right?
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> uh, they both have to deal with adolescents going to school and dealing with the pressures of s- in school. But there's this dark undertone of, uh, you know, who are these girls? Who are they? And what's wrong with them? But it's through the eyes of guys, right? <laughs> it's yeah. Through that male gaze. Yeah. But uh, particularly Hanging Rock would be like one of the first ones to do so and very effectively the cinematography is absolutely gorgeous and how they actually got the look is is incredible because like they said the cinematographer put a put they try, he try using different veils to create a certain type of softness that you see on screen so it would like either highlight the lighting or show the softness of the girl you know all the girls and everything to make it look very dreamy looking very ethereal almost like you can't even touch it because it looks angelic. It's a beautiful film. I love Pinnacle Hanging Rock. And I think I watched it when I was a teenager. I was just, I was actually in college when I first heard of it. So in a way, it kind of sort of related to it because, you know, even when you're in, in high school or in college, you're still learning yourself. You're still, and as a woman, you're still learning who you are as a woman. Mm-hmm. And to kind of have that be seeing that be viewed through a third party i could understand how it looks kind of mysterious and confusing and it's complicated yeah you know and i like that picnic Picnic at hanging rock kind of touches on those themes without being raunchy or anything it's very innocent and Mm -hmm. how we suppose like what does it mean to be feminine and how that impacts everybody good or bad
0: yeah yeah, I saw this years ago and I think the thing that always stands out to me is just how ethereal the mm-hmm. film is and how how mysterious everything is about the film that there's this inscrutability about the characters and the more the the characters who are left behind try to get to know the girls who have disappeared the the further away they they actually seem to get and i like i love your your comparison to the virgin suicides because i think that there's that similar undercurrent there as well the more these men who as they have grown older and think back on these teenage girls that they once loved the more they think back on them and and try to uncover the mystery of them the the further away they are and there's something I think just profoundly true about that idea that the more you try to know this idealized version of someone, the the further away from reality they actually are.
2: Yeah. And that's a, I think that's the whole point of the whole Miranda character. Cause when, when she disappears along with the two other girls, one of them stays behind and one of them actually comes back from wherever she went and the people around her were trying to ask I think her, the character's name is Irma She's trying to ask her like what happened what did you see and she you don't she doesn't get to answer
1: Yeah. and
2: uh, and even when they're trying to get answers from her they're still concerned about this one other girl Miranda what happened to Miranda <laughs> it's like she's so put on a pedestal even when she's missing mm-hmm. there's so this shows like just how like this yeah. obsession you know with Whoever is like the main beautiful one, because there's something unattainable about it. Yeah. So it's like I just find that very interesting. It's almost like it's actually kind of dark too, because there's also this other story. You have Sarah, and she's like the orphan that there was. They were taking care of, and she was like, you know, she worked with Miranda here and there. And so she's distraught, you know, Miranda isn't there. And I get, and Miranda's kind of like a role model for her. Sarah doesn't really know anybody else. And so to her, she's like, she's, almost like a, mm. like the Virgin Mary almost, it's almost like a deity to her. It's, you know, yeah. she's always mourning mm. for her. So mm-hmm. I, I like that the film kind of takes that character and kind of shows just how beauty is revered in everyone else's eye, but also shows like a very thin line with obsession and showing just how removed we are from her even though you know we should be caring about her so like what 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 about her but it's like kind of just it's prompted by her beauty isn't you know not yeah. so much about who she is because we don't know anything yeah. about these girls
0: yeah that way that we idealize someone and they become something something more than than what they actually are yeah that's a great recommendation, and yeah, I think this is a this is a good one. And I think especially since it's part of this Australian New Wave bundle as well, this is a great time for people to check it out as well.
2: I also found it interesting that the school is run by another female as well. It's like you have the mm. headmistress, and she's like yeah. the polar opposite of some of the other women there. Like the other ones seem so soft and so sweet, and this one is like completely mean and very strict. <laughs> <laughs> It kind of like talks about like I guess I I could also connect it with the other movie I'm gonna bring up, but this idea mm-hmm. of having order and structure, and uh, you know Miranda kind of appeals to that free spirit that the girls have, mm-hmm. and so but the headmistress is kind of like against it in a way. Yeah. And so it kind of seemed like she's kind of fighting with her own self, you know, like she doesn't have to be a strict headmaster. If she wanted to be, she could just be just as free and just as loving, mm-hmm. but it's just like a struggle. Cause she's, she takes out her frustration on Sarah so much, you know, and Sarah yeah. just wants to know what happened to her friend. She wants to know what happened to Miranda. It's not her fault that she's an orphan. It's not her fault that she's, uh, she was left behind, but in a way it kind of like takes out, uh, she kind of takes her anger out on this girl. I think it kind of shows like the darker side of, I guess like a darker side to being a female and how we're kind of pinned against each other in a way. Mm-hmm. This competition mm-hmm. that you know, mainly mainly through like I guess through a male gaze, basically. Mm-hmm. You know, a woman may look a certain way, but you have another woman right next to her. She could just be equally beautiful, but there's something about the other woman that people are feel prompted to pin her against. Like no one could be like her. Yeah. So the kind of creates this underlining tension, regardless of age, regardless of sexuality or whatever it's just this, this this underlining need to pin against and to put down because this other person doesn't live up to a beauty standard or live up to a certain type of ideal what femininity is mm, yeah. and, and it's interesting too, like it's in a school where you're you yeah. know you're taught to you know learn certain things and act a certain way and you know sarah she's just an orphan she's uh, she already doesn't feel belonged and you know she feels removed and it's just like it's find of it very really interesting that her character is so put down i mean it's a great film it just it just explores just the complexities of of being a woman and being a girl and then growing up in a school and you know trying to figure out who you are and everyone else is trying to figure out who you are because you are this ideal to so many people very complex film
0: yeah. Yeah, I feel like there's there's a lot to unpack in this. And again, that's that to me is what makes a great work of art worth returning to time and time again. The first film that uh, I want to talk about in this is called Apostasy. It is from Kiske Kenoshita from 1948 and it was made not long after the uh US occupation of Japan following World War II, and it's this very earnest film that is set in and around a elementary school and explores the caste system in Japan. And the film itself is set in the early 1900s and is about a man named Sagawa, who's an elementary teacher. And he comes from an outcast family, and has been encouraged by his father to hide his outcast status, that even though the the caste system has been abolished, the rest of society still believes that the caste system should still be in place. Uh, even though his friend and classmate is a reformer and wants to see things change, many of the people in the town that he's teaching in have very fixed ideas on who should be in charge and who should be teaching. Their mentor at the school is of samurai lineage and he is being forced out by uh, the principal who is descended from farmers. And so there's constant class differences throughout and he's embarrassed that he's being forced out by a farmer. And the farmer still would look down on the on Sagawa, who is an outcast. And so you, you have all of these different strata of people operating within the school system. And Sagawa also has another mentor by the name of Inoko, who is a reformer who is an outcast. And he is writing... Pamphlets And traveling across the country and encouraging towns all across the country to abolish their caste system and to think through uh, the fact that everyone is, is equal and trying to encourage people who are hiding their caste to come out and to share their outcast status so that people can see that uh, people from outcast villages are actually just the same as everyone else. And uh, it's this really moving story of the way that that this prejudice had been baked into japanese society and you get the sense that kenoshiro as this new constitution for japan had just been adopted was really trying to encourage equality was really trying to encourage his country to abandon some of the rigid class hierarchies that were still in place at the time it's a, a deeply humanist film the the film is really moving and you see sagawa not only trying to by the end teach his students about humanity and about the common humanity of everyone but you also see him learning from his mentor the the reformer what it means to to live free and openly and honestly and yeah it's a it's a really beautiful little film it's considered one of uh, kenoshita's minor works it's not one of the ones that people think of uh, more prominently but uh, it's a a really lovely little film that i think is really powerful again statement on on the prejudices of japanese society that i think still has a lot to say to us uh today
2: Mm -hmm. nice
0: I try to fit in uh, as much Kenosha into my recommendations as I can since <laughs> we have, uh, I think, 500 Kenosha films on the channel. And if I don't try to work them in every once in a while, <laughs> then by the end of my podcast, all I'll be talking about is Kenosha, So it's
2: okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is your podcast. You talk about whoever you want. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh. uh,
0: so, Alexandria, what is the second film that you want to talk about today?
2: Okay, so this one's called The Freshman and it's directed by Sam Taylor and Fred Neumeyer and it stars Harold Lloyd. And this movie is actually about Harry Lloyd and he plays this character named Harold Lamb. He's a very naive, very, very overly excited student <laughs> at this new university called Tate University. That they that was his dream to go to college. And he yeah. strives to be the coolest guy on campus, and honestly, everything goes awry when he tries to. <laughs> <laughs> it is beautiful slapstick on screen because, I mean, if you're if you love Charlie Chaplin and if you love you know, Buster Keaton. And of course you have to love Harold Lloyd. He's, he was just as an influential comedic back in those days with his innovative filmmaking and his comedic timing. It's too perfect. So like his character, he goes to Tate university because he wants to be known as like the, like the big guy on campus. He decides to emulate his favorite movie character, I believe it's, he's called like the college guy or something, and he has this little dance jig that he does just to get people talking, to get people to like him. And he decides to make his nickname Speedy. <laughs> <laughs> so whenever you hear his name, oh, call me Speedy, and he does a little jig, and then everyone loves him for it. Right? The only downside is that one of the other characters, his name is Cad. He knows he's a joke, and so he tries to make him a laughing stock on campus, and everyone pretty much knows it. But whenever Harold thinks everyone's laughing, they think it because, oh, he's so cool. And really, he's just a laughing stock. And sadly, he has no friends. The only friend that he has is Peggy. She is like the daughter of the uh, landlord of uh, the building he stays in. And she has a crush on him, too. There's clearly an attraction between those two characters. They're so cute together. I, I love seeing them on screen. <laughs> But basically, he still tries to get to win everyone, everyone's heart to be the darling of the college campus. He tries to <laughs> he tries to um, make it to the football team. He ends up being a tackle punching bag, basically. And it's so funny because like they literally go, oh, we need uh, the, the coach is Like, I need players to know how to tackle. You guys are not leaving this field until you guys know how to tackle. And their tackle dummy is not working. It's brilliant slapstick across the board. Harold Lloyd becomes the tackle dummy on. T- <laughs> 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 and uh, he's, but he's still so excited. He thinks he joined the team, but he doesn't. The coach is like, he loves his spirit and everything, but no, he's not going to join the team. There's no way. And one of his peers is like, make him be a water boy just so he could be, enough know, just so you could, he could think that he's on the team or something, you know. So that doesn't work out. But then he, uh, he still has somewhat of popularity. They they love him when he does that little dance. So someone invites him to be the host of this fall dance, and even more slapstick happens because it's, <laughs> it's just, things do not go well. It doesn't go as planned. I like, feel really bad for this character. It's so sad. He tries to you know win the hearts of many once once again. It just doesn't work out. His suit falls apart. <laughs> it's the so fun. It's a, it's generously a hilarious movie. But it's such a relatable movie because anyone, whether you go to college or high school, there's always that pressure to be liked, you Mm -hmm. know, and Harold Lloyd and his pure comedy genius to make such a perfect film. That's so, so relevant and relatable even today. I mean, it's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a good film to watch to understand that whether you're in school or even at a job, you know, be yourself. (laughs) It's a hilarious movie. The football sequence towards the end of the film—it's—it's it's so funny. It's genius, and it's so much slapstick. Again, it's Harold Lloyd just has a—he uh, has so much charm, and he's so likable. You really root for him, you know. You want him to be light, you know. Mm-hmm. Who doesn't want to mm-hmm. look Harold? I mean, he's—he's he's pretty much a genius, and I love the the story. It's so well made and well written, and uh, still resonates you know for i mean ever since it's been released it's it's one of his most successful films other than uh, safety last his other classic but it's definitely a film that you know if you're if you're going to college for sure check this out (laughs) (laughs) i highly recommend it it's a great laugh it'll just remind you don't take college that seriously it's it's really (laughs) (laughs) go there for for your study don't worry about being the most popular person on campus (laughs)
0: yeah Yeah. You know, there's something about Harold Lloyd that, uh, you know, I, I I find his performance so, they feel so modern, right? They, they don't feel as dated as some silent film performers do. And I, I just feel like he's, he's from today and he just stepped right into a silent film. It's, it's amazing to me.
2: He does, and, and even while I was watching a movie, looking at the, the the scope of the football sequence. It's phenomenal. It looked like he could have made it now if he wanted to. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm, like, I'm I'm like that's astonishing. I was I've had the same reaction when I was watching Safety Last. Like, how do you do that shot with the clock? Like, that's that's incredible. Like, oh, like he did that in downtown LA. It's, like yeah. it's, it's <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a very modern yeah. take on it, and I think that's why people love him. You know, it's it's contemporary in of itself.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's a that's a great recommendation and something very, very light. And maybe those people who are headed to college can uh, get a few pointers from yeah. Mr. Mr. Lloyd.
2: Because college can be it's tough, especially when you're a freshman. And I, I yeah. love that's called a freshman because it is about the, your first time being on a college campus. You're so excited. You have high hopes. And that's the point. You have high hopes. Sometimes you just have to, you know, bring them down a little bit. And it's okay. That's right. you know? <laughs> you're there to get to know people. Not everyone's gonna like you, and uh, it's it's not as bad as high school, but it's 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 tough. Yeah, (laughs) and I I just love like Harold Lloyd. will give the viewers something to laugh at. I mean, even Revenants when they're of their college days. I remember when I was a freshman in college, and you know, I was had the same enthusiasm. I was so excited. Mm -hmm. Only made one really good friend. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yep, yep. (laughs) You wanted
2: to be one of those popular kids, but sometimes that's not the case, and that's okay if it's not. You you want people to like you for who you are, and I I like that Uh, that message through that movie. Yeah,
0: that's awesome. That's great. Well, my second film that I want to talk about is on the opposite end of uh, Funny. It is Socrates, and this one is directed by Roberto Rossellini, and it's from 1971. This one is part of Rossellini's history films, the set of films that he was making for Italian television as a way to kind of provide uh, an educational experience through cinema. And it was part of his attempt to just uh, do what he felt was a way of just filming history almost and I actually find this one to be maybe a little more accessible than some of his other history films. Some of those can be a little dry and uh, some of those can be a little more pedantic. This one I find is really lively and a lot of it has to do with the lead performance of Jean Silver as Socrates. He is uh, an incredibly compelling actor. This film, follows Socrates towards the end of his life as he is accused of misleading the youth of the city and of teaching heresy, telling the the youth of the city that, that the gods don't exist and teaching them about demons and leading them astray. And he's followed around the city by his disciples. And you get to see him engaged in really great debate and Socratic dialogue uh, about the nature of life and uh, there's some just really incredible bits of philosophy and dialogue and conversation that at times are obnoxious and at times make your head spin a bit. But you see him (laughs) arguing his way out of arguments. You see his disciples trying to make assertions about things, and you see him poking holes in all of their arguments. You see him really kind of encouraging his students to think more fully and To think about all of the implications Of the statements they're making So that they're not just Making a bold Assertion without really thinking through the consequences of what those things might mean. And then you see the trial and you see him defend himself against all the accusations. And yet he still was condemned to die. And so it's a tragedy and, and yet there's still some real joy and some real uh, beauty in the film. Again, the performers are all really much more compelling than the very straight Kind of no-nonsense storytelling would lead you to believe and i think that again this is if you want to dip your toes into rossellini's history films i think this is a really intriguing way to do it and uh i think uh, again jean Silver is very very fun in in what could be a very dry and droll performance yeah, I think this is a an intriguing look at the ways that teachers can shape their students, and mm-hmm. the ways that a really a really good teacher is sometimes looked upon with suspicion by uh, the surrounding community. Yeah, you know, I think that we live in uh, a time and in a culture where expertise is looked on with suspicion, mm-hmm. and you know, I think it's it's good to remember that this is something that seems to have been happening throughout history as well.
2: I like that you mentioned uh, how Socrates wanted his students to think more broadly about what they're saying. Cause you don't yeah. know exactly what, what exactly that they actually mean when you make bold statements. And that's very interesting because we live in a, in a type of world where everyone wants to make an opinion about something. Yeah. I know. <laughs> and sometimes I'll be online and be like, okay, I hear what you're saying, but do you really understand what you're saying? <laughs> And uh, I just find that it's very true, and and yeah. even now, like I I love hearing a lot about Socrates, even Aristotle, like those those Greek philosophers were always fascinating to learn, and I like to like take and try to take them to heart, like what their principles were, and I still think that I think we well, we can all learn from Socrates a little bit today. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I you think know that the things was, that we may yeah. we may be complaining because we we seem to like everyone's angry about something, you know, yeah, and so because in today's world with social media you know everyone feels free to say whatever not really realizing there could be a deeper meaning to what's being said and it's unbeknownst to the person who said it Yeah. so i i, I like that that you point i like them when you pointed that out so yeah. That's a, a point.
0: yeah yeah i think it's a it's an encouragement to slow down maybe and think about what we're saying before we blurt it out
2: yeah and when you think about it, philosophy you know, you know, life is life. Can be the best teacher, right? Yeah,
0: yeah. I like
2: that. I like that you chose like a like an actual philosopher, that like a typical <laughs> teacher. Like like that's something I'll mention.
0: Yes, but it's, yes. It's
2: perfect because life in itself will teach you lessons if you're, you know, if you have to learn at some way, shape, or form. And what better way to do that than Socrates? Yeah. So like that's perfect. Yeah, perfect. yeah.
0: Well. That is four films to catch on the Criterion channel as you're looking for films about school that you may have missed. Uh, Picnic at Hanging Rock by Peter Weir, Apostasy by Kisuke Konoshita, The Freshman by Sam Taylor and Fred C. Newmeyer, and Socrates by Roberto Rossellini. Alexandria, thank you so much. This was so much fun and such a great conversation.
2: Thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun, and I hope everyone likes the movies. Check them out; they're great. Yeah,
0: this is this is going to be great. I I think that they'll they'll get some really great stuff out of these. Where can people find you online?
2: Yeah, you can find me as Film and Vinyl on Twitter and on Instagram, and my website is also uh, Alexandria-Daniels.com. Um, if I were to post anything uh, from my blog, it would normally would be on Twitter. So Twitter is like the best place to to find me. And feel free to talk to talk about movies with me. So. Awesome. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you.
0: You can find Criterion Channel Surfing at CriterionCast.com and our website, Cinemacocktail.com. And you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by searching for Criterion Channel Surfing. If you'd like to continue the conversation, join us in the Criterion Channel Club Facebook group or send us a message at Channelsurfing at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Josh Hornbeck. Our logo was designed by Doug McCambridge of the Good Times Great Movies podcast. You can see more of his design work at dpmdesigns.com. Criterion Channel Surfing is a proud member of Criterion Cast. A podcast network and website for fans of quality theatrical home video releases. Find out more at Criterioncast.com and support the work of Criterion Cast at patreon.com/slash Criterioncast. Criterion Channel Surfing is listener supported, so please consider donating to the show at patreon.com slash Josh Hornbeck. For just $5 a month, you get early access to all regular and bonus episodes of the show, and for $10 a month, you'll have the chance to give my guest and I a film to discuss in a special Patreon-only bonus episode. I'd like to continue to thank all of our current Patreon supporters. It really does mean so much. Thank you. On the next episode of Criterion Channel Surfing, Alexandria and I will return for a follow up to today's episode in which we'll discuss films about teachers and students that are available on other streaming services. I hope you'll join us. Thanks for listening. Criterion Cast, a podcast network and website for fans of quality theatrical and home video releases. Find out more at CriterionCast.com.